and welcome to the premiere of the seventh season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Keith Talian. Keith is a writer, researcher, and New York City historian. He holds degrees in history and urban planning and runs the Instagram account Keith York City. He is a contributing writer for The Daily Beast, has been a guest lecturer for the Cooper Hewitt Museum, City College, and the National Arts Club. He has been profiled by Condé Nast, The Times of London, El Decor, and The New Yorker. Keith is also a licensed New York City tour guide and leads public and private tours all around Manhattan. We're going to talk today about Leonard Bernstein's New York City in musical theater. Hey, Keith, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, we'll go right into our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? Uh, first experience with a musical was, I think, like most uh, kids, my first exposure was Disney cartoon movies. So like my earliest memories are watching um, the Jungle Book, The Lion King, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, all those 80s and 90s classics. But then I started getting into more like Broadway centric musicals uh, in like late high school and college when I had um, like musical theater and choir friends who had come to New York on school trips and had gone to see musicals and they brought back the soundtracks. And I was exposed to this whole world of musicals that I had never heard before. So I specifically remember discovering Aida and Spring Awakening, both of which just kind of blew my mind uh, in that era, along with like Avenue Q, um, which for like a perverted like teen uh, boy, that was just magnificent. Um, and then came like the early aughts musical movies like um, Moulin Rouge and Chicago that were huge hits. And so it kind of like made that genre um, kind of placed it right in front of me for the first time. Um, outside of like the Broadway world. And then finally, and I think it was 2007, I, I, on one of my trips to New York, finally made myself go to a Broadway show. And weirdly enough, my first musical in person was Tarzan, um, followed by Wicked. Nice. What is the last great musical that you saw? In August, I saw, uh, I think for the fifth time, Hades Town, which mm -hmm. just never gets old for me. Um, and this particular uh, outing was really special because it was for Ava Noblezada's last performance as oh, Eurydice. Yeah. And so as soon as I found out she was leaving and her last day was on my birthday, I just like freaked out and went immediately <laughs> to the box office and bought like fourth row center and knew I just had to be there. And so specifically, you know, harping on the word great, that was probably the last truly great theater, like musical theater experience that I've had. Yeah, I really, I really should see that. on. I saw it off Broadway many mm. when it was downtown, like many years ago, and yeah. I haven't seen it on Broadway, but I mm. feel like I should. Yeah, it just kind of sunk its hooks into me more than I ever expected it to. Um, mm. and, and I don't know, I think 
it was the sort of thing where that musical story caught me at a very pivotal time in my life as well. You know, it was a year or so before the pandemic. I was going through like personal changes. I had a relationship ending. Um, I was about to move, like just everything was kind of in flux yeah. for me personally. And then this show is all about, um, you know, decision-making and relationships and like, what are you willing to give up for happiness and safety and security? And um, it just, every, and every time that I've seen it, it's kind of hit me at a different stage of my growth and evolution. And mm-hmm. so every time it's kind of like a different show for me, Yeah, noticing different things and pulling different things out personally. And while I, it's hard for me to say that there are any Broadway shows I dislike, um, I'm a very easy, you know, I'm a very easy audience member, I like to think, but something about Hades Town really taps into something visceral with me that I can't get enough of. Uh, what's a musical that people would be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised? I settled on two uh, that I think would be a surprise only because they're not necessarily the most popular musicals. Um, but they're musicals that I hold very near and dear to my heart, and they are The Last Five Years and If Then, hmm. uh, the short-lived Adina Menzel as an urban planner musical. Um, <laughs> but they both were, you know, The Last Five Years was an off-Broadway performance. I didn't even become aware of it until it was already, like, you know, not in production at all. Um but I just became addicted to the soundtrack. And then they made the movie with, what was it, Jeremy Jordan and Anna Kendrick. That was, I think, a pretty wonderful rendition. And then I saw a recording. Um, I think it was via the, the the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, where they had the original Sherry Renee Scott. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it Leo Norbert Butts, I think? Yeah, uh, Norbert Leo Butts, yeah. Norbert Leo Butts. I'm always bad with <laughs> the names in the right Holding order. Yeah. Sorry, Mr. Butts, if you're listening. But um I got to watch the a recording of that. And anyway, it just was unlike anything else that I had ever heard up until that point, just the storytelling and the, the deep sadness locked into it. Sadness that I had not really experienced at the age when I first watched it. Um, and so like Hades Town, it's the sort of thing where I can watch that, watch that or listen to that musical again and again and again as I get older and it becomes ever more impactful and I hear different things in it and I relate to different parts of it. I think that's it because those are not musicals that I hear brought up very often as part of like the pantheon of like great musicals that everybody loves, Mm -hmm. but they're ones that have had a special impact on me over the years. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize. Uh, I didn't see if then. I didn't realize that she was an urban planner. So, so that, so that was. An, I guess I didn't talk about that very much. But yeah, that was the thing. I went because I love Idina Menzel and would literally listen to her sing the phone book. And when she had this kind of vehicle show for her, and she hadn't done that kind of a leading role on Broadway in a while, um, I of course got tickets right away. And this was before I had started grad school. I ended up going to grad school for urban planning, but. I was thinking about it when I went to see this show and I wasn't aware that she was an urban planner in it. And it all just felt very kismet. Um, And of course she's got the big like um, uh, intermission number. Uh, I think it's called starting over. She sang it at the Tony's just Mm -hmm. brilliantly, but she, you know, gets to do her big Adina belt. And um, I just remember sitting in, you know, the mezzanine and looking down and listening to her voice and watching her, you know, play this urban planner character in New York, you know, hemming and hawing over right and wrong decisions in her life and thinking like, yeah, I'm in exactly the right place right now. Mm. and doing exactly what I need to be doing. So it's very special to me. Um, very, it's rooted in my heart. What is your favorite musical about New York City or any city? 
focusing on New York just because I'm such a New York guy. Um, I think other than If Then, which is also focused on New York uh, in a more playful way, New York-based musicals that I love are In the Heights um, because I actually became aware of it. I missed it on Broadway, but really got into the soundtrack actually when I moved to Washington Heights. Um, early on in my life in New York, I moved uptown in 2012, and that that soundtrack just kind of became the soundtrack of my life up there um, and helped me really connect to different specific places. Lin-Manuel does an amazing job of plugging real locations and events into his songs. And so I was, I would find myself wandering around this new neighborhood that was my new home and just every other corner I was seeing something that he had talked about in the show. So that and then the other one that kind of made me laugh when it popped into my head was uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, mm-hmm. just because it's about like a grittier, grittier New York that doesn't necessarily exist anymore and um, really kind of plays into like the 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 comedy of uptown versus downtown, rich versus poor, yeah. you know, urban versus suburban and, and just kind of turns all of that on its head. So hmm. always makes me think of, of a kind of New York that I remember from my childhood that doesn't exist anymore. Right. In Little Shop of Horrors. Who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist? Yeah, I think uh, favorite hero, I have a hard time settling on one. But if I have to pick one, I think it would be Aida. Mm. Um, just the whole musical, all the music in general, and especially, you know, the soundtrack with Heather Headley's voice singing that role. Um, it's very hard not to go through the whole emotional arc with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then favorite villain, I settled on Hades from Hadestown. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's one of those perfect non-villains where you're supposed to root against him. He's supposed to be evil. He's got this deep grumbling voice, but then through the show you learn what a softy he is. And that's so much of what he does is out of both insecurity and love um, and kind of just being backed into a corner by his own power and this system that he's set up to keep his love with him. Um, So it's in the end, you find yourself um, almost unable to really be mad at him. He gave um, Orpheus a chance um and orpheus is the one who slipped up spoiler alert uh, <laughs> but you know hades is the archetype of a bad guy um but he's really not he really is very human and very soft when you scratch below the surface great well let's move into our topic which i'm super yeah. excited to discuss um we're going to be talking about leonard bernstein's new york city which is his kind of three of his musicals three of his major musicals that are set and deal with new york uh and since you are you are a new york tour guide and urban planner and Mm -hmm. Do you consider yourself a historian as well? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Went to undergrad for history. History, yeah. So all those things. um, It's so so great to be able to talk about this with you. So we're going to talk about, yeah, On the Town, uh, Wonderful Town, and West Side Story. Because, yeah, I was thinking, like, it's it's so interesting that these three big Bernstein shows are so heavily New York-focused in a way that's Mm -hmm. very like neighborhood specific and like really, really using the neighborhoods and the sites in New York to tell 
mm-hmm. these stories. Um, and I first just wanted to talk about Leonard Bernstein for a little bit because one thing I remembered from, I guess I was reading a transcript of his episode of uh, the sh- uh, television series Omnibus from 1956 on the American musical comedy. And uh, he said something in there that like always stuck with me, which was that um, he was talking about like the difference between musical theater and operetta. And this is his own assessment. This is mm-hmm. not like st- standard definitions or anything, but in his view, operetta were things like uh, showboat or the King and I are carousel. There were things that uh, were set in some like, uh, far away, like exotic place, even exotic, like something non-New York, whereas like yeah. musical theater or musical, the musical comedy was something that was like, had a, something that had an American subject, mm-hmm. had characters that were not remote or exotic. Right. They were New York based, basically. You were verbally and musically in the vernacular and by musically vernac- musical musical vernacular, he meant like urban jazz. Mm-hmm. And I think he was trying to like distinguish like the musical comedy is for the people where they live. And right. that's if it's going to be on Broadway, it should be for for these New Yorkers set mm-hmm. in New York. That's the vernacular he was talking about. So mm-hmm. I just thought that was an interesting that was his kind of view of the musical comedy. And mm-hmm. so all his big shows, I guess not Candide, but, <laughs> but the major shows on the town, wonderful town, West side story, all kind of follow that, that his kind of philosophy on what mm-hmm. the American musical comedy should be, which is very, very New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think just giving people a bit of a mirror Uh, to hold up to themselves, kind of Mm -hmm. saying, this is you, this is a version of your life that you can relate to. Um, Whereas the operettas and those, those older, more, I don't want to say fantastical, because they were often supposed to be rooted in a real location and real events. But um, operettas, I think, in his view, were meant to transport people somewhere outside themselves, outside their daily reality, which is wonderful and useful in its own way. Yeah. Um, But Bernstein was part of a um, kind of a early mid 20th century movement toward, especially in New York, uh, analyzing the more mundane, celebrating the everyday, you know, person who would sit down in the cheap seats at the back of the orchestra or up in the balcony. Um, that was all worth looking at and digging into, uh, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, also what I thought was interesting about these three shows and not only are they about New Yorkers and New York, I mean, they're all have the New York, like kind of a New York in their title on the town, town, wonderful town, West Side mm-hmm. Story, the specific neighborhood. But they're all about kind of like these outsiders in New York, whereas mm-hmm. like on the town is tour is basically tourists in New York. Mm-hmm. Wonderful town is transplants, you know, coming mm-hmm. to New York and West Side Story they live there, but they're, you know, they're immigrants in mm-hmm. New York. So also interesting that all three of these shows are kind of New York, but from like an outsider perspective coming right. in. Which is very much in a very long standing tradition of outsiders, 
not only passing judgment on New York, but just trying to make sense of New York, which I think in, in the most um, distilled fashion, New York really is a representation of pretty much all of humanity. And so there's something really beautiful, but also really intimidating and confounding about New York as a subject and as a place to explore, both in in musical theater, but also just in everyday life. That's why so many millions of people come to New York and why so many millions of people move and immigrate to New York every year. Um, it's, It's because of that overwhelming sense of anything goes here. Um, not to pull in a, yet another musical. But, um, it's, I, I think these the three musicals that you've chosen for us to talk about, they really show, um, it's, it's important that Bernstein chose to show New York as it's viewed by someone from the outside, because that is how the vast majority of people here experience it. Yes, for sure. So, um, well, let's start with On the Town. And I... Mm-hmm. This is not just Bernstein writing these. We also have Betty Condon and Adolph Green writing the at least these first two shows as well. So just want to mention them writing book and lyrics. And uh, but yeah, on the town, 1944, New York City. I mean, very much a a wartime show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The three sailors kind of docking. They have 24 hours on shore leave to experience new york and Mm -hmm. uh yeah of course like it starts with the most new york song of (laughs) of all which is new york new york uh that they sing when they get there but uh it act it does actually start with um kind of like the city waking up which i think is also really cool Mm -hmm. uh way to introduce the the show with with the dockyard workers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel like I'm not out of bed yet. Oh, 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 the sun is warm, but my blanket's Yeah, the show is is a really neat look into the mindset of, you know, the New York theater going public during World War II. And you've also got to think about what was going on in the city and the country, of course, you know, nearing the end of World War II. Um, From a more pragmatic standpoint, you know, the 1940s during the war was the peak ever of rail travel in New York. So you've just got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people pouring in and out of Penn Station and Grand Central every day, going every which way. Um, You've got a massive war effort at all the industrial ports and factories all around the harbor and the rivers of the city. So there's just clanging and noise and smoke and bustle everywhere. Um, And all of that, you know, in, in New York's long tradition of attracting outsiders to it, you know, whether for economics or, you know, independence or whatever it is, 
all that war effort and bustle attracted a huge new influx of outsiders that was adding to the already heady mix of people that made up New York. And so this show is written and set in a period when New York is really experiencing an unprecedented level of industry and um, just cultural expansion and excitement. And you've got kind of that nervous optimism that the war might be coming to a close soon. And so I think that New York, New York, it's a hell of a town, um, really shows how New York was emerging as something more like the modern city as we experience it today than it had been before the war. Hmm. And so it's this, you see in these songs and in the way the sailors and everybody else is reacting to the city and interacting with the city, that New York is something different uh, in a really exciting way. Come on, Davey, hurry up! 24 hours! Hey, why don't you look where you're going? You think it was your first time in New York? It is! New York, New York! It's a hell of a town! We've got one day here and not another minute to see the famous sights. We'll find the romance and danger waiting in it. in New York City, not counting MacDougall Alley in the heart of Greenwich Village, a charming thoroughfare. Here we go again. The famous places to visit are so many, or so the guidebooks say. I promised Daddy I wouldn't miss on any, and we have just one day. Gotta see the whole town from Yonkers on down to the bay. In just one day, New York, New York, a visitor's place, where no one lives on account of the pace, but seven millions are screening for space. New York, New York, it's a visitor's place. It's a visitor's place. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, uh being defined as a place for the tourists yeah. and everybody to come. And and that's true even today. I mean, you've got entire swaths of mostly Manhattan where your average, you know, New York resident would insist they'd never go. I mean, think Times Square, Herald Square, um, various restaurants and museums at certain times of day and night. <laughs> it kind of becomes part of the artistry of being a New Yorker, of knowing where to go and where not to go at what times. <laughs> Right. Avoid the tourists. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> because it's a visitor's place. These, these are places that are not necessarily for us. <laughs> yeah. And this is this show is like of the three, the one that is not as neighborhood focused, I guess, like it, it really uses the entire mm-hmm. city, but it does have certain places that it does focus on. Like, it, I mean, it, I think they come into Times Square. Mm-hmm. Um, they're on the subways. Yeah. They go to Carnegie Hall. There's a whole scene there. There's a whole scene in the Museum of Natural History. They go to Coney mm-hmm. Island. So like I do hit like a lot of the big right. places um of NY of NYC. I guess, you know, the very touristy places, but mm-hmm. 
Yeah, if you've got two days in New York, that's that. Those are all the things you should be doing. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess there's the whole Miss Turnstiles thing, which I guess mm-hmm. was a real thing at the time. It was a real subways. thing. Yeah, they stopped in either the 60s or the 70s and actually revived it in 2017. And other than a couple years break for COVID, they actually held it again this year. Oh, Um, interesting. So it is. I don't think it's quite as like, I don't want to say above board, but today it's not quite as like connected to the MTA, to the actual (laughs) subway. Now it's more of like an independent kind of cheeky thing. I actually, if I'm not, forgive me listeners if I'm mistaken, but I think this year's uh, pageant or contest was actually held at like the Museum of Oddities or the Sideshow Museum down in Coney Island. Oh, funny. Um, so it's become kind of this quirky thing a la the Mermaid Parade or the Halloween Parade or something. It's it's become this quirky New York thing that they're trying to revive and long may it uh, run. I would love to see it continue. Yeah, because in the show, like one of the main women that mm-hmm. matches with the sailors is... Yeah. Uh, he he sees her in the subway as as Miss Turnstile and is like, <laughs> must meet her, <laughs> must meet that woman. But right. I guess that's kind of like, it, it just seems also just such a New York thing to happen. Yeah. Like you see somebody somewhere and it's like, I must meet you. And then yeah. you'd have to try and find them in New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's such ample opportunity for serendipitous interaction in a city like this. Um, I do think it's interesting on, I think we'll probably touch on this more when we talk about the next show, but how On the Town was written about the current day. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not looking ahead. It's not looking behind. It's talking about right now, um, which is not, I would argue, not often the case with musicals. Yeah. They're they they are more often nostalgically looking back than they are current. Yeah. Although one thing I think is funny about On the Town is that it, uh, I think it's Chip, one of them, his guidebook is 10 years old or <laughs> it's like from 1935 yeah. or something which is i guess when yeah. the the next show we're going to talk about is set but he's like mm-hmm. um he has this outdated guidebook and he's just like trying to keep up with right right <laughs> with it. He's changing yeah yeah so he's a little bit in the past yeah. there in that way but yeah if speaking of the next show, Wonderful Town, which mm-hmm. is written in or uh, premieres in 1953, but set in uh, 1935. Mm-hmm. I just love this show is so neighborhood specific. Um, the mm-hmm. opening song is like an ode to Greenwich Village, basically, right. and starts with um a tour guide giving a tour. So you're basically in this, in this show, uh, giving your, giving your your village tour. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Introducing people to mad Bohemia. Washington Square, right in the heart of Greenwich Village. My wet trees, smell that air. Painters and pigeons in Washington Square. On your right, Waverly Place, bit of Perry in Greenwich Village. My what charm, my what grace. Poets and peasants on Waverly Place. Ever since 1870, Greenwich. 
Greenwich Village has been the bohemian cradle of painters, writers, actors, etc., who've gone on to fame and fortune. Today, in 1935, who knows what future greats live in these twisting alleys? Come along! You see Christopher Street, typical spot in Greenwich Village. Ain't it quaint? Ain't it sweet? Pleasant and peaceful on Christopher Street. But it's an interesting show because it was both written and set long before, uh, you know, any version of the village that we might necessarily be more familiar with today. You know, it's before... Uh, the rise of the queer liberation movement with Julius's Sippin and Stonewall. Um, it was back when, um, you know, it's set in the 1930s, which was at the tail end of what I call first wave bohemianism in Greenwich Village, this era that had begun really at the end of the 19th century as like the rich folks who had made Greenwich Village back in the early 19th century were moving out and dying off and their mansions were being chopped up and turned into apartments and tenements. Um, by the 1930s, however, what had begun happening, you know, when the, the, what was the M McKinney sisters, McKinney, this used to be part of my tour in the village and I'll explain why it's not anymore. McKinney. McKinney. It's Nyleen McKinney. Um, so when the McKinney sisters moved to the village in the 1930s, that first era of bohemianism was still very firmly entrenched in the neighborhood and it's what it was still known for, but what was beginning to happen was essentially what in today's vernacular we would refer to as gentrification. So rich folks were beginning to move into the village because they wanted to be part of all this excitement and artistry. But a lot of people moving into the village in the 1930s in the lead up to World War II didn't necessarily want to live like the bohemians that they wanted to live amongst. And so you see this influx of socioeconomic disparity and essentially wealth pushing into the village. And you see this architecturally when you walk around the West Village today, dotted here and there, are these high-rise apartment buildings from the early 20th century that would have housed those kinds of more affluent, more comfortable people who wanted to live in Bohemia but not live like a Bohemian. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you know, a concept we're very familiar with in New York today is that those buildings pushed up the prices of the whole neighborhood, which then pushed out the artists, musicians, immigrants, everybody that had made the village so exciting since the turn of the 20th century. So the, the McKinney sisters would have experienced what I, again, what I call late stage, uh, first wave bohemianism in Greenwich mm -hmm. village, but this musical based on their writing in 1953, um, is set in the fifties after world war two, when the beat movement was just getting started. And what I call the second wave of bohemianization was beginning in Greenwich village, largely thanks to the influx of suburbanites, uh, in America in general, a lot of those rich folks who had made Greenwich Village um, less affordable in the 1930s and 40s were now leaving the neighborhood, leading to a real estate dip that allowed for a whole new generation of immigrants and musicians and artists to move in. Um, and so this musical Wonderful Town is set in Bohemia Number 1, pre-World War II, but the musical was actually released post-World War II in mm -hmm. what would become essentially Bohemia number two. So that was a long-winded way of saying <laughs> I find this really fascinating because it's kind of got a toe in each mm. wave of artistry and, and bohemianism in Greenwich Village. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere 
maybe on Wikipedia, <laughs> that um, that for a brief time, Bernstein and uh, Adolph Green were roommates in <laughs> in Greenwich Village together. So they uh, maybe they drew from that a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it was it was the place to be for generations, even when it wasn't really in its heyday, you know, during World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still a known place. It never lost that reputation of being a place where you went to be creative and be around other creative people. What do you think it is about the village that attracted that, that, uh, you know, group of people? Uh, I mean, I went to school for history and urban planning. So I look at this in a very nuts and bolts sort of way. <laughs> um, but essentially Greenwich Village developed on its own wonky grid with its own narrow streets and its own kind of personality before New York City, which started down at the very southern tip of Manhattan, grew up and around it. And so by the time New York and its wide streets and its rigid grid system, you know, moved up the island far enough to encompass Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village was already set. You already have, you know, Greenwich Avenue and Christopher Street and Jane Street and Commerce Street, all these romantic little quirky lanes that hit each other at odd angles. And so the grid just kind of went around it. And so essentially when New York's industrial sector really began to take off, and I apologize, this is very dry language, but I promise it makes sense. When, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, New York really began to industrialize rapidly. And so you see as the city grows up the island, one neighborhood after another where people were living, you know, one year, they'd move out in favor of huge big box stores and factories, essentially giving way to this wave of redevelopment for commercialism and industrialization. And that was all well and good on the city's grid system, which was designed for exactly that. But over in Greenwich Village, with its very narrow streets and tight corners, it was never an attractive place, except on the waterfront. Um, But the heart of Greenwich Village was never an attractive place for industry and commerce because it was simply not designed for that. Um, And so my point is that Greenwich Village was essentially left alone Mm. as this quirky, quiet residential enclave on the west side of the island as the rest of the city kind of just churned into modernity all around it. And so with that, real estate prices tended to remain low. Buildings tended to be kind of you know, crooked and quirky and romantic. The streets were, you know, aesthetically pleasing. And it just became this pocket of kind of frozen time Mm. where artists could go and be amongst each other and also be inspired by the world that they were building there around themselves, be inspired by the architecture and the twisting streets. And all of that has just helped to kind of coagulate into a neighborhood that's unlike anything else New York has on offer. Yeah, so their so their um, apartment in particular has uh, a history. It it's a very sad history now. So the McKinney sisters, um, I actually don't know how different this is in the musical, but the McKinney sisters actually lived in a basement apartment at fourteen Gay Street. I think um, it's I think it's pretty similar. I don't know if they ever say the address. I. Yeah. But um, I know in spirit it's supposed they to be. Live, yeah, I think they live in the basement, so or yeah. at least something very similar. I think that's the thing because in the musical they're supposed to like hear the subway construction through the wall, which yeah. Through. But the actual building where the McKenney sisters lived when um, one of them was writing what would become my sister Eileen, that would then become 
uh, wonderful town was 14 Gay Street, which was this tiny little white painted brick two-story federal townhouse likely built in the 1810s or early 1820s when Greenwich Village was just starting to turn into like a real village rather than just like a seasonal rural enclave. And they rented this basement, which is just impossibly deep and dark with this impossibly narrow staircase going down to it. Um, And they would, they in their recollection talked about how, you know, the dirt was right below the floor. And so every summer they'd have to hack back plants that were pushing up through the floorboards and, you know, it was always leaking and, and, and they could hear all the noises of the subway and construction through the ground. Um, But what has happened recently is if, any of you seen this in the news, 14 Bedford Street, or sorry, 14 um, Gay Street was purchased by a developer um, who was doing some work in it and apparently destabilized a um, load-bearing column inside, something like that. And essentially the house was deemed unstable and unsafe and has now been demolished as of about six or eight months ago. Um, there is still a lot of conversation about what's going to happen to the site, but as of right now, it is an open pit, which is very, very depressing because up until about a year ago, you could go and actually look down into the stairwell where the McKenney sisters had lived when they wrote the stories that would become wonderful town. Um, and I've read accounts of, um, for many years, uh, a later resident who lived in that basement apartment. Um, would talk about how often he'd wake up to find groups of tourists from Ohio looking through the window and talking about the song, Why Oh Why Oh Did I Ever Leave Ohio? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so he just became very accustomed to having Ohio folks very excited to see his dank little basement apartment. Wow. Oh, that's, it's such a shame that that has happened. What there's, there's talk that they might rebuild it to look like it did, but even if they do, it's, it's that patina of age and everything sagging and at odd angles, that's all been lost. Now there's, there's no bringing it back the way it was, which is very sad to me. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, the apartment, the the neighborhood, such a character in the show, the apartment Mm -hmm. is such a character in the show um and uh yeah and it's it's also i mean it's it's also so interesting the show really i guess shows a a broader new york city as well uh, not as much as on the town but they have you know she goes to the brooklyn navy yard where there's these brazilian navy cadets so another like there's so many different 
ethnicities, you know, being represented. Yeah. Brazilian Navy cadets doing for the Conga number, mm. and uh, then there's a whole Irish number with the Irish police officers. Right. Uh, their landlord, uh, I think, is Greek with the Apopolis. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's also like they really uh, took care, I guess, in the writing to represent a lot of different uh, ethnicities that were in the city at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, it is a bit of an embrace of the new melting pot that New York was becoming. Um, Cause this, you know, especially it was staged after world war two, but set before world war two, but all at a time when the city was still grappling with how to, kind of meld together the millions and millions of immigrants who had just poured into the country, you know, starting in the mid 19th century, all the way up to and beyond World War One. Um, and that faucet of immigration had really only been turned off with World War One and the Great Depression. Um, but, you know, this show is a reflection of those like first, second, third generation immigrants from the 19th and early 20th century, now entering um, kind of the mainstream of New York's culture and they've got these new types of stereotypes where the Irish are police officers. Um, you've got the exoticism of a Brazilian Navy. Um, it's almost as if Brazil was just the most exotic possible type hey. of Navy if you could imagine. Yeah. Um, but then you've got Greek Mr. Apopolis uh, as the landlord um, at a time when a lot of building owners and tavern owners and corner store owners were from places like Greece and Turkey and Armenia um, and so it was just, it was a whole new tapestry of people mixing together to make New York a wholly new modern city at the time when the show is set and staged. Um, I think just to, to kind of put a period on the, the contrast between On the Town and Wonderful Town is that On the Town is about guys passing through. It's about visitors to the town interacting with the city as outsiders who are not necessarily going to be there forever, where wonderful town you've got these sisters who have made the choice to move to new york and try to find their fortune there and so while we are looking at two musicals that are about outsiders experiencing new york you've got one show with far lower stakes um and a, you know arguably much more of kind of optimistic or flippant optimism mm -hmm. in, on the town where you can just kind of like bounce around and view all the sites and interact with some people here and there. Whereas wonderful town, these sisters kind of get put through the ringer as anybody who moves to New York can attest to that really is what happens when you move to the city. It's, um, it's, it's a reflection of two different ways of visiting New York, one just to visit and one to make a life or at least a career or a name for yourself. Yeah, it's uh, and on the town, I guess New York is kind of like the fun respite from mm -hmm. like a horrible or just hard war mm -hmm. times. Whereas uh, Wonderful Town is like they they come into the difficulty here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, they gain a thicker skin. They you know, despite missing home, they learn how to pick themselves up. Um, and to fall in love and to interact and essentially to survive, which is in a very real way, the story of moving to New York. You've got to just figure it out. There's nobody who can tell you exactly what your experience in New York is going to be like. 
if you feel compelled to move to New York, I always tell people just come, Mm -hmm. you will figure it out. And if after a year you haven't figured it out, you're welcome to go somewhere else, but at least you've tried. Um, but that, that scariness, that, that difficulty that comes with actually transplanting yourself into the madness of New York, um, that, that is reflected in the McKinney sisters in wonderful town. Um, in a way that's very relatable, considering the fact that this was all written almost a hundred years ago now. Right. And I guess I should, should say the, in the musical, their last name is Sherwood for some reason. Oh. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> for, I, those I, who, for those who are, uh, know the musical well and not the, what it's based on. And you're like, that's not their last name, but <laughs> you're getting firsthand evidence of how difficult it is for me to pull myself out of my history studies. So. Uh, Apologies for that. For some reason, they changed it to to Sherwood. Yeah, I wonder if it was a rights issue because it had gone through several permutations by that point. I think it was Ruth that wrote a series of essays for the New Yorker, and then those got collected as like one, like a essentially an essay novel called My Sister Eileen, and then that got turned into a play, and then the play got turned into the musical Wonderful mm-hmm. Town. So we're getting their real story kind of through several lenses and filters. Right. I'm sure at some point somebody decided either narratively or legalistically they had to <laughs> McKinney. Right. Great. Well, that leads us to West Side Story, yeah. which is, if we're talking, carrying the thread through, these are people mm-hmm. who did come to New York, but they've been living here for a little while. They're, mm-hmm. This is their neighborhood. This is their turf. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, so this is um, very much, again, set in a very specific part of New York, mm-hmm. west, the west side, upper west side, in uh, an area that I think people all know the area. I don't know if people have really, how, how often people visit the area behind Lincoln right. Center. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a funny little pocket of Manhattan that kind of feels, lo- it doesn't really feel like any neighborhood. Uh, like mm-hmm. It doesn't quite feel like it's connected to the rest of the Upper West Side, but it's also definitely not part of Hell's Kitchen. Um, right. So it is kind of its own thing, which I guess makes sense considering, I mean, it's always kind of had its own identity. It used to be San Juan Hill, which itself was a subsection of the Tenderloin, which was a long running, you know, vice and poverty district up the west side of the island. Um, but what's cool about West Side Story is it continues the story that continues the conversation that started by wonderful town with all the different, you know, ethnic names and stereotypes and things. West Side Story takes that and drops us into the middle of arguably the hardest part of, um, you know, New York's constant cycle through of people, which is both, you know, the fight for and against assimilation, you know, what does it mean to assimilate into American society and specifically into New York American society? And also what does it mean to people who already feel like that they've put down roots here when another group inevitably comes in behind them and tries to put down their own type of roots? How do you mesh those things together? How do you make a society out of so many different you know, backgrounds and ideas about what it means uh, to live in New York. And so, you know, now this 
musical came out in, um, it was the 1960s, right? That it actually came out. It came out in 57. The movie was in the 60s, but the show came out, yeah, in 57. Was the stage musical set in another place or was it always set over on the west side there? It was always set on the west side. When they were first developing it, uh-huh. They the first idea was that it was going to be the Jews and Catholics on the Lower East Side, and that was going to be the the feud. Like it was always uh, adapted from Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, yeah. And it was going to be in an urban setting in New York. But the uh, this was in like the late '40s, early '50s that they started developing it, and mm-hmm. that that was the idea. But they yeah. abandoned that uh idea and then kind of resurrected the idea to be puerto ricans and mm-hmm. kind of white white immigrants um yeah in in uh in this west side neighborhood yes i i know west side story from the movie um yeah. apologies if if i'm not totally up on the stage musicals total history but from a an urban development perspective it seems almost serendipitous that the show was already in production. And then the whole Lincoln center project came up, Mm -hmm. um, which was part of an overall just massive wave of highway construction and urban redevelopment, all coinciding with very rapid suburbanization in New York. So the city's population was on the cusp of dropping precipitously as people fled out to the suburbs, but specifically in that neighborhood, which had historically entrenched poverty um, and was actually called San Juan Hill because of its um, dense uh, Caribbean Spanish-speaking population, you know, harking back to Teddy Roosevelt's uh, battle at San Juan Hill during the Spanish-American War in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, so that neighborhood was always kind of known as a Spanish-speaking enclave amongst the otherwise, you know, mostly German, Irish, Greek, Italian um tenement district of what's now hell's kitchen and what and where like penn station and hudson yards are um but city leaders were increasingly in the 1950s and 60s using urban redevelopment schemes to essentially you know what i very simplistically call kick the can down the road Hmm. you know they couldn't solve urban poverty but they could get it out of sight and so Mm -hmm. by demolishing these poor neighborhoods in brooklyn the bronx Um, on the west side of Manhattan, the lower east side, Harlem, um, they could essentially put a very, very large Band-Aid over what was an otherwise very difficult to solve problem. And so this neighborhood, San Juan Hill, was earmarked for demolition to be replaced by modern middle-class housing, as well as a massive cultural arts center. And so the, the musical West Side Story drops us both into that crack between, you know, the residents of the neighborhood who have been there for a long time versus the Puerto Rican and other Caribbean immigrants who are now coming in, you know, onto their turf, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, Also at a time when they all know that the neighborhood is about to go away entirely. So there's also this very sad element of them fighting over something that doesn't entirely matter because it's not going to be here. Mm. Um. So it really captures this quite sad and traumatic era of flux in New York. Yeah. 
and brings our focus down to the personal level. You know, when often we talk about these urban renewal projects and highway projects, we talk about it in terms of numbers, um, you know, and, and, you know, ecological effects or what have you. But in West Side Story, we're really getting to know the people whose lives are being upended by the ways in which New York is changing, both um, culturally, linguistically, and, you know, infrastructurally in the 1960s and 50s. Now, I know Tony like I know me, and I guarantee you can count him in. In, out. Let's get cracking. Where are you going to find Bernardo? At the dance tonight at the gym. But the gym's neutral territory. Ooh, I'm going to make nice with him. I'm only going to challenge him. Great, daddy So everybody dress up sweet and sharp. Meet Tony and me at 10. And walk tall. We always walk tall. We're Jets. The greatest. When you're a Jet, you're the top cat in town. You're the gold medal kid with the heavyweight crown. When you're a Jet, you're the swing in his thing. Little boy, you're a man. Little man, you're a king. And then, yeah, because I think people don't, they know, I guess, if they've looked into it, but that Lincoln Center, I guess, was an urban renewal project. Mm-hmm. And they, and I guess I've read, like, people say, like, they, like, it's purposely, fa- like, has its back to yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> that yeah. neighborhood behind it. Like, you can get yeah. there, but, like, it, the, yeah. it opens up on to the other yeah. side. Yeah, it's very obvious if you walk down, what is that, 10th Avenue back there? Or maybe it's Mm -hmm. 11th. But if you walk down that avenue behind uh, the Met Opera and the um, Vivian Beaumont Theater, it really is just a wall of marble and freight truck entrances. It is not a welcoming complex for the people living behind or to the west of the complex. And what is west and behind of the complex are middle-class apartment towers and NYCHA housing projects. So the very people that, at least the demographic, in in theory, the people who were displaced by the construction of Lincoln Center are those with the least ready access to Lincoln Center. So there, there's this, you know, still visible divide. Ambulance going by. Very New York. Yes. <laughs> you can still see evidence of the way that the city approached that redevelopment at the time. And, and just... For listeners' sake, Lincoln Center is a wonderful place. I, I don't think I would ever advocate for its removal. Um, but I think it's also important while enjoying and appreciating the grandeur and the utility of Lincoln Center with all of its concert halls and venues and all the wonderful artistic achievements that have happened there over the many decades it's now stood. It is built on top of a neighborhood that was wiped out specifically because the city wanted it wiped out. Um, and that is the undergirding narrative of West Side Story. Yeah, and I guess uh, 
should also just add for context for the show that uh, no longer Betty Comden and Adolph Green for this show. We've got Stephen Sondheim on lyrics and uh, Jerome Robbins and um, Arthur Lawrence uh, all collaborating on on this show. So a slightly different tone than uh, the more comedic uh, Comden and Green style mm-hmm. uh, on the town and wonderful town. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, probably necessary for the, <laughs> the subject matter. Oh, absolutely. And I think overall Broadway musicals as a genre, were kind of moving towards something that would be more recognizable today as a, a modern artistic movement. There's, mm-hmm. you know, more realism, more darkness. Um, and, and as you started out the show by talking about it, it's almost aggressively holding a mirror up to the audience in this mm-hmm. case very much saying look new york this is you these are your people this is what you're doing to each other um which is it it adds to the already intrinsic tragedy of the romeo and juliet story yeah great well let's move on to our next section which is why is this so good and uh we're going to talk about the song i'm here from the color purple Mm -hmm. uh why did you pick this song for why is this so good on a personal level, uh, I was introduced to the Color Purple musical um, while I was in college. I had just recently come out of the closet, you know, and that had not gone well with everybody in my immediate circle in my life. So it was kind of a heavy time for me personally. And I already was familiar with the Color Purple movie, the uh, the um, Oprah movie, Um uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say the Oprah movie because this new one coming out is also by Oprah, but the one with Oprah in it. Right. Uh, the Steven Spielberg. Thank you. Movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything on any other identifier for it. But anyway, I was already familiar with it in the story and I didn't get to see it on Broadway, but I got a soundtrack copy. I think I might have even ordered it like off of eBay or something like that because it was so hard to find in, in the little town where I grew up. But I listened to that thing almost to death just couldn't get enough of it and there was something about the song i'm here that resonated with me really heavily in that moment i know i've kind of hit on this a few times in our conversation about you know intersecting with musicals at different times in your life will Mm -hmm. give you a whole different read on them depending on how old you are what's going on in your personal life and i kind of crash landed in the middle of the color purple musical at a time in my life when I really needed a power ballad telling me that I am here and that I matter. Mm-hmm. And so that's me from a personal perspective, why I listened to this song again and again and again. And the album I had was um, LaShawn's original Broadway cast yeah. performance. Um, in the show, obviously this is the show stopping number where you know, after, you know, hours of watching this woman just get abused and beaten down and feel insecure, you finally see her assert herself and literally stomp the stage to pulp, telling us that she is here. She is asserting herself as a presence. Um, And then adding to all of that, my introduction to the show, I finally got to see it on Broadway during its revival, I don't know, five or six years ago. I've completely lost track of the years, thanks to the pandemic. I have no (laughs) idea what year it is anymore. But um, I got to go see Cynthia Erivo's performance on Broadway and I was there on 
uh, it was either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So it was like, you know, in the middle of the holiday season, I was down in the orchestra. Everyone on the orchestra level was just dressed to the nines in their churchly best with hats and suits. And when Cynthia Erivo sang, I'm here, and I'm sure many of your listeners have watched videos of her performing it, it just brought the roof down in that theater. Everyone was on their feet. People were shouting and hooping and hollering and praising. And I have never experienced an audience reaction like that. Yeah. So if I already, if I didn't already have a very close emotional, personal connection to the soundtrack and to this song specifically, that performance in real time brought all of that to a whole different level for a new version of myself that was experiencing it. I don't need you to love me. I don't need you to love I've got I've got I've got my sister I can feel her now she may not be here, but she's still mine, I know. She still loves me. Got my children, I can't hold them now, they may not be here. They still mine, I hope they know I still love them. I I actually haven't seen the show. So just experiencing this lyric as like or, or the song rather as its own mm-hmm. uh thing without the the show was also uh around it was also really uh mm-hmm. interesting because uh i i know yeah i know the story because I, I saw that movie and mm-hmm. i think i read the book a long time ago yeah i i kind of was like zeroing in on all the references she has to her life mm-hmm. in the song her sister mm-hmm. and then her children and like each one i'm sure like has all these resonances Cause you've seen her mm-hmm. relationship with her sister mm-hmm. and, or, and the children, which, you know, have all been heartbreaking. Yeah. The I'm whole sure. show is an emotional buildup <laughs> to this moment. Yeah. And it's just, I can't name, I don't think a more satisfying culmination in, in a Broadway musical, at least not in recent memory than this one song. Mm. my house, it's still, Keep the cold out Got my chair When my body can't hold out Got my hands doing good Like they supposed to Showing my heart To the folks that I'm close to Got my eyes Though they don't
Yeah, her a house, a chair, mm-hmm. all these all these things. And I it's yeah, it's interesting because they are they're like such simple things in a way, like mm-hmm. sister, children, yep. house, chair, my hands, mm-hmm. my uh my eyes, like, yeah. but it's it feels like each one, and I'm sure, if, you know, as I said, if having seen if you've seen the whole show, I'm sure has mm-hmm. much more resonance. But like the yeah, just how they it takes like these simple things from her life, from herself, and like imbues them with all this meaning and history mm-hmm. and and everything that yeah. creates that effect uh, in that you experienced. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Starting from I don't need you to love me and ending with that I'm here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm beautiful and I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, she's somebody who's been kind of kicked to the curb again and again in her life. And the assertion that I am here, that I take up space and I own this space and I use this space well for all the good that I can do with my limited means, you know, even if I only have my hands, I can still do good. And so it's, it's her taking ownership of her presence and her humanity. Um, All the things that have been stripped from her through Mm -hmm. her life, she is retaking them. And it is deeply powerful on many levels, obviously for her, but also for, I think many people out there who listen to this, song and watch this show can relate to the feeling of not being worthy or not being Mm -hmm. you know qualified to take up the space that we do we often uh, as humans want to shrink ourselves down and get out of the way and be quiet and defer to more powerful people but in this song the lyrics assert that we are here yeah yeah and just the fact that it is a song like she has to sing she has to use her mm-hmm. voice in this big way to take oh, up such, space take up space such, with that voice yeah. such an emotional arc it is mm-hmm. uh and that's especially why i mean i know Lashans did a wonderful job and i'm sure fantasia will do a wonderful job but being in the theater and watching cynthia do it i mean mm-hmm. i don't know how she did that eight times a week yeah I mean, just she would end the song just sobbing mm-hmm. And in such a belt uh, that it, it it almost hurt <laughs> yeah. that she was filling this theater up with so much noise and so much emotion. Yeah. Um, I just I could I, I watch YouTube videos any now every now and then I still pull up the YouTube videos of her performing it and it's it never gets old because it is it's everything it's the entire show dumped at our feet. Hmm. But most of all, I'm thankful for loving who I really am. I'm beautiful. Yes, I'm beautiful. Very much looking forward to seeing the movie version and and what they do with it. On that note, 
we can move into what we're looking forward to or something yeah. wonderful section, uh, something in musical theater we're either either looking forward to or just want to give a shout out to. Yeah, aside from the Color Purple movie next year in December, I think everyone's excited about the Wicked movie coming, which is going to be, I, I am optimistically nervous um, <laughs> to see this musical that, you know, is I've seen so many times with so many different actors and yep. I love so much and I've read all the books and it just, I am very excited and I, I'm hoping, and Cynthia Revo is playing Elphaba and I have full faith in her to bring it home. Yeah. But I am, I am just going to be a giddy anticipatory mess until <laughs> December. And then for another year after that, waiting for part two. Right. But aside from that, not a non-cinematic thing that I'm I'm excited about personally is I actually just bought a ticket. So I'll be in London for a couple weeks in January. Um, and I just bought tickets to see um, at the Barbican center. They're doing a stage production of my neighbor Totoro, the oh, Hayao Miyazaki nice. cartoon. Um, and Miyazaki gave his blessing to have this stage production made. And it is supposed to just be wonderful. Lots of award nominations. You know, I don't know if it's ever going to make it to Broadway, right. but it, it, it feels like a very, I love Miyazaki movies. I yeah. love Toro and I'm very excited to see how they do it. Apparently it's a lot of stagecraft and puppetry. And I'm Yeah. Very yeah. Uh, I saw the, I don't know if it's the same people, but I saw the spirited away. I didn't know they made from, it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, from, from, I guess from Japan mm-hmm. and then they, uh, they had it in cinema, you know, in the movie theaters, <laughs> in okay. the cinema, uh, in the movie theaters in the spring. And I think it's going to be on Max for a little bit. Cool. I'll have to watch for that. Yeah. I, mean, I know the Totoro thing is done by a, I believe, an English director, mm-hmm. um, but working with a Japanese um, composer to handle the music. That was one of Miyazaki's. Mm. Uh, stipulations he wanted the music to be right um but i believe it's an all english production and it was put on at the barbican center where i'll be seeing it so i don't think it's gone beyond that yet but yeah i'll keep an eye out for the spirited away thing because i would love to see that i'm I'm also excited about um the new version of cabaret that's coming over from the west end in london they're going to be opening it here with eddie redmayne as mc Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Cabaret was it, 10 years ago now with Emma, when Emma Stone uh, was in it with um, oh, yeah. Alan Cummings. Um, so I'm very excited to see this one. I've heard a lot of good things. That's like very stripped down and kind of dark and gritty. So mm-hmm. I'm excited in general for a new year and new experiences. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter or X at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash scenetosong where you'll get bonus material from many of the episodes. 
The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.